Are you ready to get the body and health you've always wanted? It's time to do it. This is Bodies by Brent. Brent has been a personal trainer for 16 years, and now he's all yours. Interviewing the pros in health, wellness, and the fitness field. Get educated and motivated. Let's get to work. From Austin, Texas, this is Bodies by Brent. And this is your host, Brent Ruska. Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies by Brent. I'm your host, and today we are here with Peter Craig. Hey everybody. Yeah, so I reached out to Peter because I was actually looking for a therapist, and I have a great therapist now, and I think most people should have a therapist in their corner just for any issues they're working on or just for personal growth, even if stuff's feeling good, right? Yeah. You know, I was recommended uh, to you, and... Even though I have a therapist now, you have all kinds of interesting experiences and credentials, and I think relationships with yourself and the people that are you live with or your very close relationships are so important to getting the fitness, health, and well-being that you want out of your life. And I think you know people need to become a little bit more aware of that. So I just want to pick your brain about all the cool stuff you know and just share it with everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, yeah. thanks for reaching out and having me on here. It's great to be Barbell Vitality. It's a really great spot. Yeah, yeah. And excited to dive in. Yeah, man. I'm super pumped. So tell me a little bit about your story about getting into being a therapist and all that. Yeah, sure. Um, I was in sales and marketing out of college, just paying the bills and, and finding the right career and enjoyed that. Found some cool companies. I don't know if I sort of go local, but I got to help grow that company for a while. It's still around a little bit, but... Okay. Not the, the founder died, but we got to help support locally owned businesses. And I got to kind of pound the pavement going, talking to up down South Lamar, South Congress, talking to a lot of cool business owners and what was important to them and getting to connect with them. And it was really fun for a while. But after doing that for so long, you get tired of banging your head against the same, same, uh, same deal. And so I really enjoyed the relational aspect of, of sales, of getting to know people, building relationships. And when I was ready for a change, I started asking friends and family, hey, what do you think is a, a good next step for me? And what, what are my skills? And, and I was doing my own reflection and around communication, connection, and just how important that is in my life. That kind of was a resounding uh, response from my community and friends. And uh, my mentor, I had known like eight or nine years in, from spirituality, uh, was a counselor and had a thriving practice. And so it just kind of all worked out. And all of a sudden, I, I Got uh, went to grad school for counseling. I was like, I didn't go back to school. It was wow. really for personal growth and uh, it's like for a lifetime, which sounds exhausting and also really exciting. <laughs> yeah. So I'm um, still in that. You know, it goes waves back and forth from uh, feeling a little overwhelmed with there's always more to learn. There's always more theories and everything. But then just coming back to, you know, just learning more about how our, how our cells work and how relations work and how to deepen them and feeling the satisfaction of getting to make that more of my life. That's that's all. So how long you've been now doing this? Yeah, so I've been practicing for three three plus years. Okay, so cool. Still Very cool. still new. Yeah, that's and that's such a radical shift to just completely go. I'm going to go full on. So that takes a lot of bravery. So that's that, yeah. That that's 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 great. So tell me a little bit about. I've been just recently studying this myself. Attachment styles. Yeah, I've been trying to listen to the audio book of Attached. I think it's called, mm-hmm. and then I've been. Uh, listening to the other audio book of like getting the love you want. And mm-hmm. in some ways they're similar in that 
in that first one to five years or something like that, a lot of what you're attracted to and your experience and relationships happens in that period of time, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's important for people to, if they have this awareness, maybe help them navigate relationships better. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It's been kind of a major influence of the counseling field over the past few decades where we did some research in the 50s, John Bowlby, and uh, basically the idea that the way your parents attuned to you in your earliest years helps you form your own sense of self and how you attune to yourself. Okay. And so there tends to be kind of a, a few patterns that people tend to identify with. And so if you can hear us out for a second and see if you pick one of those, that can really help you have a new lens to look at how to improve your relationships. So let's see, where do I start the spiel here? Yeah. Um, basically, the original research was on infants with a caregiver with their mom or something where she would leave the room and then baby would be upset. Mom would come back and then the baby would either kind of seek care or turn away or kind of be stuck in the middle. And so I'll walk through each of those attachment styles. So first case, uh, the anchor Stan Tacken. I'll I'll get you on that book. Stan Tacken has a book called Wired for Love where I think he explains attachment a little easier than attached. I had a hard time getting into that book just Maybe that's just me, but yeah. In the first here. like chapter or two, I was like, I don't know if I could do this. <laughs> yeah. It's like a lot of just like data, Dance. and it's just like, well, this is too much. I need a YouTube video. It's like ten <laughs> minutes long to just tell me what's going yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so break it down really simply. So first case, the anchor or secure attachment. Mom leaves, baby's upset. Mom comes back, baby seeks care and proximity. Mom's like, I'm there, I got you, and baby's synced up. Then they're back to playing. They're happy. That's kind of the ideal scenario. We all have pockets of secure attachment where that we might have gotten that. Um, scenario number two, baby leaves. Or mom leaves. Baby's yeah, yeah. upset. Yep. Mom comes back. Uh, baby is in an internal state of distress, but not seeking care or proximity. Just kind of like, oh, well, you already left last time and you weren't around, so I'm just going to deal with this on my own. So there's kind of the me-centric, uh, it's called the island attachment style from Stan or the avoidant or dismissive attachment style. And this is where people tend to be very self-sufficient, self-reliant, but not learning at an early age to not rely on others for their emotional needs. Okay. And that's called, it's an insecure attachment in the sense that as humans, we're interdependent, you know, as, as mammals in danger, we, we don't run away from danger. We run to our caregiver as children. And so we need to have a safe person to be able to run to. And if we stop kind of relying on that, we, we lose something a little bit inside and we start pruning neurons for connection in our brain that say, Hey, reach out because it's painful if your parents are, you know, if in, in significant, uh, if they're not there, you know, a lot of just daycare kids, you know, parents aren't around. There's not someone who's attuning to them when they have an emotional need. They kind of have to swallow that instead of try to get that met. And it's not there. And that's even worse almost sometimes. Yep. So you start to form this attachment style of self-reliance. And in our culture, you know, that's celebrated very much. And there's, there's a lot of good sides to being your own person and, you know, taking your, taking leadership and responsibility for your own life. But there's also, we're relational beings and we need that human connection to feel satisfaction and, and the deepest way. So um, that's the second attachment style. Third one is kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. You can think about kind of me-centric versus we-centric is a okay. simple way to put it. Um, this mom leaves, baby's upset, mom comes back, baby's like, soothe me, soothe me, give me that love. And it's it, it's inconsistent. So maybe if it's alcoholic parents or just parents are really loving and available sometimes and then just not other times, it's kind of this confusing push-pull of kind of, fearing abandonment and then clinging. So people can sometimes relate with, you know, if their partners goes out of town and there's just like 
this like physical feeling of like, oh, like I need to grab onto them. I need to feel that kind of external regulation to use a counselly word yeah. um, that we use. And so that attachment style is, is known as the anxious, ambivalent or preoccupied or the wave, Stan Tatkin calls it. Okay. And so the wave attachment style is more externally regulating, meaning that having someone in your corner, having someone next to you, reassuring you, kind of giving you that emotional need is very satisfying and soothing, not just you know to your, to your mind, but your physical being, it's really soothing. And so that's also an insecure attachment in a sense because people maybe are so desperate to get their needs met that they're almost kind of missing the other person. So, you know, often you might relate in your own relationship. Sometimes you feel like the other person needs you as an object there, but it's not really like they're not actually like, what are you, what do you need in the moment? Like they're not necessarily kind of uh, holding space for you as well. And so even though that's, uh, you know, trying to cross the bridge of connection and say like, give me some connection, I need it it's in a way that maybe the other person doesn't really get to have their own fullness and then that can create problems. So identifying, do you relate with the island or the wave or the secure kind of anchor attachment style is a good start to see like, well, how, what are your needs? And then how is that playing out in the relationships? And if you're looking at, you know, for me, personal experience, I've definitely had some, some tough relationships that learned a lot about how to show up for myself and how to meet people's needs and identify my own. And, and if you uh, are showing up insecurely, you're, I tend to be kind of more on the island side where I'm kind of avoiding intimacy. Yeah. And so that's kind of my growth edge is how, where am I avoiding intimacy? And that's actually, how do I lean into that and actually get the connection I need and desire? That's super interesting. So what are, what are some ways people can even begin to understand, like, I have some needs and they're not being met? Like, how do, how do people even kind of become aware of that? Yeah, so... Just starting with with identifying what how do you relate with these attachment styles? It might be pretty easy to click into one of them, or it might take a little bit of looking up. There's some quizzes online. You can find some free free ways to to check that out, or some of these books we can mention. But um, I think it's about taking responsibility for your own needs and responsibility for our our interrelational needs to our humanity. That um, I think our again our society sometimes doesn't necessarily support that. It's all kind of competition of everyone versus everyone where it's kind of lonely at the top. And so um, I think it's noticing like where, where are relationships hard for you? Are you feeling like disconnected a lot of the time or not, not very close to people you love, or do you feel like you can never get enough from the people around you? And they're always, you're always trying to get more and then that's causing problems. So kind of seeing what side of the spectrum and, and looking from there. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think for me, I have a little bit of an anxious and avoidant. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> and then the yeah. longer you're in a relationship, it can kind of change, I, I imagine, as well a little bit. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think becoming aware of being like, you know, am I starting to push someone away? Am I, am I being anxious about something that's not even real? I'm just mm-hmm. creating this in my head. And yeah, yeah a, a lot of mindfulness and awareness, I think, goes into uh, all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And one easy way to spot the attachment styles is, um, are kind of what getting together cause a little bit of internal distress or is it more of whenever you go apart? So for islands, typically, if you're just minding your own business, you're working throughout the day or something and your partner barges in, you know, it's quarantine. So they're in the next room and you're just kind of caught off guard or overwhelmed. Like, tell me about your day. How are you feeling? I'm feeling stressed. And it's overwhelming. You almost want to push away from it. That's a sign you might be on the island side. Because uh, secure tends to be able to kind of manage closeness and individuality in a way where 
we're more islandy than we can feel intruded on often, which which becomes an excuse or a shell of like, I don't want to be intruded on, so I'm not going to let anyone in. But then that's pretty lonely. And then the other side of it is if you're hanging out and then you go apart and you feel a drop that's, you know, maybe not that rational from your, from your mind, that might be that anxious attachment where, you know, your partner's leaving you just for the weekend or whatever, but it actually, you can feel it as a drop. And that's that physiological response that kind of got encoded in childhood in your nervous system that we're learning, like, let's actually honor what our nervous system state is and what it needs. And that's a conversation we're getting to have now that we haven't really been on anyone's radar until now. Yeah. I'm really interested about the whole nervous system because obviously it plays an important role in all of your health, but so you can kind of tell when some of these things are happening because of trigger in your nervous system. So talk to me about the nervous system uh, and some cool stuff with the polyvagal yeah, nerve. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to like over jargonize here. They're no, just do it. Keep I it love simple, it. But cool. you, you guys have Google. <laughs> yeah, you, you can, can look it up. <laughs> yeah. can look the Pause up. the video, look it up, study, and come back. Absolutely. Um, so I guess I just took a 10-week course by Linda Tai on somatic embodiment and regulation, which okay. is fascinating and so relevant for my own life and the work I do with clients on how to just feel more safe and secure in your body. Um, and so, you know, we have a nervous system, I guess I'll just spiel you off for a second that we have the, the uh, sympathetic nervous system, like kind of your gas pedal. So fight or flight, you think about if a tiger comes, blood flow goes to your hands and feet, your heart starts beating faster so you can fight or flee uh, or freeze. And oh, tiger's gone everything's cool. Then the parasympathetic nervous system goes on, which is kind of the opposite, kind of the breaks, you could say, where blood flow goes to your guts and your uh, organs rest and digest, we call it. Totally. So um, basically, as as children, we start to narrow our bandwidth of what's kind of uh, appropriate behavior. I'm I'm shifting gears here for a second. Yeah. Um, You know, as, as children, we tend to you know, have a lot of different emotional states that were pretty like uninhibited in a way that now we're very inhibited, you could could say. Um, and so we tend to get punished or scolded for sometimes on the high end, like exuberance. Like I found a lizard and like, get that out of the house. Yeah. And they're like, oh, shut down, shame. Um, and so we start- Too to much actually, crying, too much <laughs> expression. Exactly. Right. And then on the low end, we see, you know, stop being sad, stop crying, pull it together. And, you know, obviously we all have different- versions of this, but it kind of narrows the bandwidth of our acceptable emotional states okay. that we don't defend against in a way. And this is all like not on a conscious level. Unconsciously, you know, we might start not wanting to cry or not wanting to be too excited because how our caregivers respond is very important because if we don't have their support, we're going to die. So there's a very instinctual kind of primal element to how our nervous system gets wired. And so with this sympathetic and parasympathetic is we get stuck in different states. So we get stuck in a shutdown kind of a low end sometimes, or we get stuck in a high end kind of almost manic state. And so learning how to identify that we're in those states and then how to shift states is really important. And that's something I'm really passionate about because how cool is it if we can now have tools to be able to notice that and manage that for ourselves and build that into our relationships in a way that no one teaches us this because it's just not part of the curriculum yet. No. And and that sucks because we deal with a lot of trauma. We deal with a lot of stressful things with our way we grow up and we don't know how to deal with it. And we usually turn to kind of secondary regulating things like, you know, substances, unhealthy relationships, workaholic, whatever, diff- our own way of kind of trying to regulate our nervous system without knowing what that needs. Um, so yeah, pause there for a second. Yeah. Even, uh, even over-exercising, under-exercising, eating too much, eating too little, 
all ways you could be coping in some way to be regulating emotions and how you feel. Exactly. And the thing I like about the polyvagal theory, which I can explain in a second, is it's compassionate towards the strategies we're using are our survival strategies. They've worked, they've gotten us to here. And so having a sense of appreciation for that instead of pathologizing ourselves, you know, in the counseling field, in the medical field, there's a lot of just pathology and pathologizing and labeling, diagnosing. And I, I'm not, you know, I get that that's relevant and important sometimes, but I don't like the spirit of it is like we're, we're humans, we're spiritual creatures. We, you know, we're more than our, just our, our suffering and our patterns of surviving. And so I think just having a sense of appreciation for, hey, whatever I'm using to get here has helped me get this far. And then let me reassess, is this a survival strategy I still need? Because maybe I can yeah. start to use things like more mindfulness to kind of downregulate my nervous system and be able to kind of hang in a tough conversation without flipping out and being aggressive at our partner again, which happens a lot. And yeah. especially in this community, you know, we have a lot of power and then how to kind of uh, metabolize that power to actually have deep connection and intimacy at the same time. Yeah. So don't take when you do the attachment theory and you find out what you are that like, if you're not secure, you're right. broken, yeah, right? You're like, exactly. well, <laughs> I'm broken. I'm, I need <laughs> yeah. help. Right? Yeah. We all have like, uh, it's not like you're one thing or the other. It's yeah. like an ebb and flow. Exactly. And obviously, like you said, you got, you it served a purpose, mm-hmm. right? And I think the most important thing is being mindful and continuing to grow and become better. And that's going to continue on for the rest of your life till the day you die. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's no like end point, like I'm, I'm amazing. Now. <laughs> I did it. I went to three therapy sessions. I'm good. Bam. I got my, I'm a secure person <laughs> ID card. <laughs> I can be in society now. Yeah. I'm yeah. killing it in relationships. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can say that, and then your partner's like, and you're not. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and you're being an ass. <laughs> yeah, we're going back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, the, is there, with the nervous system, though, there's kind of a couple different parts, though, right? Right. So, like, getting yourself. So, okay, so if you're, you know, experiencing, you may be triggered in some kind of fight or flight response. Well, first, how would you kind of know that you're potentially in that? Yeah. Yeah, so like we mentioned, kind of mindfulness is a practice of just paying attention in the present moment and being able to track what am I feeling right now? What am I noticing in my body? Uh, Those things take practice just like anything else, just like going to the gym, lifting those muscles, building kind of a mindfulness muscle of, uh, of noticing. And you're expanding your capacity to notice, which is kind of a spiritual idea, which I love. And even with weightlifting, like the presence it takes when you're really doing a heavy lift, you have to be very present. Definitely. And that's, I think that's intoxicating about lifting and, and part of the fitness element of just being so present in your body that you have to be paying attention. Um, and so with, with that mindfulness, um, basically starting to notice your triggers because in, in like group therapy, this is kind of a quick tangent. The first goal is just to recognize when you're playing out the old pattern because in group therapy, uh, you tend to kind of project your own, oh, this guy reminds me of my dad. Well, maybe he's nothing like your dad, but he looks like him. And so you're starting to relate to him like he's your dad. Yeah. But that's not really fair to that other person. But as you notice that happening in the present moment, oh, it kind of keeps happening still anyway. But then the second phase is you notice it happening and then it kind of half happens where you start like pulling it back or maybe right after you do that same automatic, maybe unkind assumption, you notice it. And then, again, and then the third phase, you actually are noticing this automatic pattern before you play it out. There's this pause moment where you're like, I'm going to do something that's maybe takes more brain power, but actually is better for my relationship. I'm going to not raise my voice again or make a different, you know, take a deep breath or walk outside. 
And so it takes kind of training to get to that. And again, like having a compassionate approach, you don't need to be like perfect at this in, in one go. You're just starting to notice where do you get triggered? You know, is it a certain thing your partner says? Is it a certain way they talk to you? Is it a certain thing at work where, where the way someone talks to you that gives you this kind of flips your lid? Um, and starting to track that. And as you do that, that creates a new map to all of a sudden, okay, now I'm noticing this happening. How do I act differently? And we can get into that. Yeah. And I think if the old me was listening to this, might be thinking, well, how am I supposed to be aware of something before? Because you may be like I used to be, where you're just responding. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you're not even aware that you were triggered until two days later mm-hmm. and all this shit happened, yep. basically. So it's like, I think developing a mindfulness practice, and there's a lot of ways to do it. For me, yeah. yoga was very like important for me yeah. to do that. And as I did more yoga, the more the space between thought and, and action grew, where it was like I could tangibly see when I was anxious. When I was like thinking something, you'd be like, hmm, I have a choice to say it or not <laughs> say it, where before it was like, Bam. Boom. Think, feel, boom, action. And then two days later, probably shouldn't have done that. (laughs) Right? The opposite of aware. (laughs) Completely unaware. So like, we'll keep going on, but what are some mindfulness practices that are pretty easy for people? Because I think that will help them be able to see the pause before taking action. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I I got into Kundalini yoga, I guess like 10 years ago. And that was for me, that, that pause and, um, really loved getting that practice because as you cultivate that practice you're kind of just noticing the space in between and the more you can build that space so you know meditation practice there's calm app there's the headspace app there's insight timer that are great starts um i like a lot of pranayama so using breath you know you, i don't know if you've heard of wim hof but that's totally. that's a little bit more on the intense energy side but just like yeah. gentle breathing exercises like uh, what i teach almost all my clients is called the letting go breath okay basically um Breathe regularly. You want to be breathing into your diaphragm, your lower belly first. Your diaphragm kind of goes moves down as your rib cage opens, expands each direction, and then up to the secondary uh, diaphragmatic muscles. And so, just practicing breathing more deeply. It sounds so so obvious or simple that it's kind of dumb, but it's we're, we breathe really shallow. If you're on caffeine, hyped up, if you're uh, stressed you start to breathe with less of your full breath and you're getting less oxygen. So like retraining your breath, like for trauma healing or just improving peak performance, if you can build skill and deepening your, your breathing starting there, um, that can be pretty powerful. So the, the letting go breath is just an in breath count of maybe three or four, and then you double the exhale. Okay. And so the idea is that you kind of relax on the exhale and it's creating that space between on that, that exhale. So maybe four count in eight count out, and so you're breathing in, just breathing in energy. And as you breathe out, you're relaxing your shoulders, relaxing your body. And you can get into a pretty relaxed state for just a minute. Feel free to pause this and just try it for yeah, a minute definitely. or two and just see how that shifts your state. Because um, if we're in this kind of running hot state, we get triggered and don't see it. But if we're actually slower down, we can notice things happening as they happen. That's great. So, you know, we're realizing when we get triggered, we're becoming aware so we can change kind of our habits. What are some ways we can, so I guess breathing is one way to kind of calm the nervous system. Yeah. And there's two, is there two ways the nervous system calms or how does that work? Yeah. I, I want to share one brain concept first yeah. and, and get to that. So basically it's helpful to understand we have a triune brain, like a three part evolutionarily kind of our, our brain stem here is hundreds of millions of years old. Then we have our more like uh, 
reptilian to mammal brain here, the limbic system, which is our like fight or flight response, our more primitive brain. And then we have our cort- cortex and our prefrontal cortex, our kind of most of all brain that's only in the past million years really come online. Cool. That's kind of the human, more human brain. And the idea is that it takes a lot more brain power to fuel our higher brain, our cortex regions. It takes more glucose and oxygen. And so when we get triggered, what that's actually happening, it means that we're flipping our lids and we're, we're resorting to a more primitive survival strategy because it takes less, less resources. And so the idea is that meditation and mindfulness practice is building more uh, flow from our higher centers of our brain to that kind of more primitive brain so that we can kind of manage it more skillfully. Wow. And so I find that really helpful is just kind of tracking when do you flip your lid? And because you can, if you start to notice where it's like, and like, that's your moment. Okay. What do you need to do right now to downshift that? And again, breathing is one of the fastest ways, relaxing your body, um, movement. You know, I think things can get really serious with meditation. People sitting there really hard trying to meditate and it's like just spinning in your thoughts. So I think embodied practices can be really mindful of just like, you know, dancing in your room really uninhibitedly or finding movement or sport that feels really alive for you. Because I think there's this concept of kind of pushing yourself and grinding and not even enjoying it, especially, I mean, I think for women, but also for men of just like keep pushing and not enjoying the fitness aspect. And that sucks. Yeah. And that kind of goes against our nervous system in a way, because I think sometimes we need to listen to our, our system, which sometimes means more rest. And our society doesn't really prize rest that much. So you really have to, stay, to to dig your heels in to say, like, I need to rest and it's good for me to rest. And then I actually can bounce back more because if you look at top level athletes, they have a very skillful re- relaxation rest regime. They sleep a lot. They do nothing a lot on their downtime because yeah. that's what the body needs to rebuild. And I think people need permission for that because we don't have that much permission in my mind. It's just like, keep going, keep going faster, faster. Um, but then that that's not ideal for relationships and, and noticing when we get uh, tripped up. Yeah. You're not going to recover from constantly grinding and not recovering. It's, it's, it's going to, it's going to tear you down and yeah, you can use that's, you know, I try to have clients use exercise or their sessions as a time to like enjoy what they're feeling or become mindful. Or sometimes I'll, I like people just piggyback your meditation right after you've worked out. Yeah. You're really relaxed. Mm-hmm. You probably everything's out of your head and also, don't be on your phone when you're working out. <laughs> Unplug for the hour. Yep. And then just take 5, 10 minutes, even just stretching and focusing on your breath while you're stretching. That's literally mindfulness. Yep. As long as you're focused on a point, whether it's sensation or breath or a thought or something, and just focusing, you're building that ability to be aware in the moment. And that'll, exactly. that'll, that'll transfer over into the rest of your life, and you'll notice you're kind of having, I don't know, at least for me, the more I practice mindfulness, things become much more HD, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Exactly. And, you know, it's the art of slowing down is maybe one way I would say that is because you can notice more. The, the, the idea is that, you know, we get so much information from our, our environment constantly and our minds constantly spinning. But if we slow down, we can actually start taking in and absorbing that information instead of it going unconsciously. So it's really about being more conscious. And when you slow down, there's more to see. There's more richness. There's more color. And sometimes that's painful. So a lot of times we don't want to sit there and meditate. We want to think about all the shitty things that are still unresolved. Yeah. You know, and that's why we need a coach. That's why we need counseling to help process and have like a beautiful story around that instead of just feeling stuck that we can actually transcend our difficulties and make something, you know, grow from it in a beautiful way. Um, but I think that with mindfulness and, and slowing down, I think 
like with the art of eating, for example, I think was one way to track that. You know, what's your eating speed? Is it fast? Is it medium? Is it slow? And can you just savor your food a little bit more? You know, I know it's it's like I remember in my high school days, it's like how fast can you eat a cheeseburger? It's like ah, you know, like <laughs> yeah. oh, you're a slow eater. Ugh. Yeah, it's like what? Um, and so now I, I actually did an eating psychology training. Uh, cool. And you know, another conversation, but yeah, it's really about noticing more by slowing down and actually savoring the richness of your food and the yeah. temperature and the texture. And if you don't slow down, you can't notice it. And then again, then that's the space where you could notice a trigger or notice something important that is meaningful. And so really giving yourself permission to have even just little moments of slowing down if it's a few deep breaths before your meal or just taking your time on one meal a day or something, just experiment. What does it feel like? Does it feel better to slow down? It'll help your digestion. Uh, for example. And maybe you get more satisfaction from what you're eating, right? Absolutely. Like if you're craving something and you eat it and you just mindlessly eat it and you're still craving, like maybe it's not even a physical thing. And if you slow down to eat it, you're like, I actually, this Snickers bar actually doesn't even <laughs> taste good. What? Uh, I should have ate a better quality dark chocolate <laughs> bar or something, right? Be like, yeah. even notice that, right? Uh, being a trainer and like throughout periods of time, like, being yes super focused on a goal i've overrided that like being aware mm -hmm. and then having to come back to becoming aware like mm -hmm. trying to gain weight just literally forcing food down and ignoring any <laughs> signals anywhere in my yeah. body that i yeah. shouldn't be doing that yeah. or like you know trying to cut weight right and only being focused on that goal and not even being mindful at all like what my body needs yeah right so yeah it's very important like take time a meal you know and just yeah. Take your time eating. Yeah. And I just building rituals in where you have that kind of relaxed space. And, you know, if we're talking about like dating and intimacy and relationships, like it's important to have your date night. It's important to have a time where, you know, you're just going to not have distractions, not have screens. And you have to intentionalize that. Or otherwise, it never happens. And you're just watching Netflix every time. And you're just, you know, that's fine unless you're wanting something more. But you have to identify that and kind of lean into how do we create space to slow down in a way that feels authentic to you? And everyone has a different version of that, but finding moments and times to slow down and see what it feels like and go from there. Yeah, I think that's very important, especially if you have goals, health goals, fitness goals, your relationship is very important because you get a lot of health from the quality of your relationship. So, you know, I've done this in the past where you get stuck and yeah, you just start watching Netflix all the time, right? So it might be a good opportunity to kind of think about where is my relationship at with my partner or any significant people in my life, right? And is there a way I could slow it down and maybe I could get more out of it? Yeah. I mean, that's in couples therapy, you know, people are in their stories of what happened and part of the, the goal is just smush them together and like literally get close body to body, eye to eye, and you start melting a little bit because okay. you have to go like love is up close in the face, Stan says. And from far away, it's more just lust. And so sometimes just having a ritual with your partner where you just get eye to eye with them, it's a lot harder to be in your past story of your defense and your whole made up thing about how you're right and they're wrong. When you're just right there, there's a little bit of more like in the present moment where you can discover something together at the same time. Yeah. And I mean, that's what really good sex is like too, right? Where you're yep. both really present to the same thing and you can kind of just stew in that and savor it and not yeah. be in a rush to get out of that. But even just with, with like conflict and, and things like that, you're you have to kind of break up the old pattern because if it's not working, it's not working. You're trying to do the same thing, but it takes, uh, it takes presence. It takes energy to, to look at your partner and like see the emotion on their face and see that it's not too happy and try to attend to that. So there's a relational skill. That's you know part of what I want to share here today is um, 
you know, having building relational skill is something that we should prioritize if we want to have more fulfillment. And I don't know if our society is given talks about that so much. And um, what I mean by that is it takes energy and attention to notice what the other person needs, what are the other person feeling. And that's back to that kind of security. If you're the if you're the island or the wave or the anchor, it's like how can you actually pay attention to your partner? Even if you have needs or you're triggered, are you just losing them? And that's going to cause more trouble. You know, how do you uh, slow down to identify you might be hurt? Can you communicate that? You know, as men, we have a hard time communicating our feelings. We haven't gotten a culture that's really initiated into us, the benefits of that. But I think, again, slowing down, you start to notice more. Oh, well, actually, I felt sad or I felt frustrated. I didn't even know that I was feeling that way. But now that I'm slowing down to notice it, can you communicate with that with your partner in a way that you leave space to have a mutual um, experience and not just one way street it. And so I think that's, I've, I've had, I'll just make up the story in my head and kind of drift further and further away from my partner until we have a big conflict and I let everything out. And it's like, well, why didn't you tell me this six months ago? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't know. I was building up a story in my head and just proving it. <laughs> yeah. It was working. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't a good story, but it was working. <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. And so, you know, again, with couples therapy, like smushing people together in the present moment, can you actually track like what, what's going on in their body? Like if they look stressed, are you taking responsibility to try to attend to it? So Stan Tacken, I keep mentioning him. He, he's a well-known couples therapist. I got to study with him and his most famous book is Wired for Love, which I think is a simpler, more fun read than attached personally. Okay, I'll take it um, out. Where I think he explains the neuroscience and practical exercise to connect with your partner in a way that's pretty approachable for men and women and everybody. Um, but, um, what I was saying about that, see if I can remember my thought. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. Um, so the wired, wired, what was the book called again? Wired for love. Yeah. Wired for love and building basically conscious relationships, right? Right. Yeah. So that secure attachment is the, is the goal where secure functioning is kind of our new definition for relationship health, where it used to be more like religious or kind of cultural dogma about relationships. And I think we're moving to an era where like, no relationships, people who anyone can have a relationship, however they want, you know, leave, let everyone be with having their own kind of relationship. But relationship health is about secure functioning, which is, can it be mutual with your partner? Is it feel fair? Are you attuning to them? Some basic principles of if you want to have good relationships and what Stan points out is the longest studies we have on well-being, like the Harvard longitudinal, whatever was more than money or fame, the quality of long-term relationships dictates our happiness. Okay. Interesting. And so that's kind of the red lights blaring, you know, like that's what I want to say is, you know, if you're struggling with relationships, part of it is to take responsibility to tend to the other person. And that takes some humility and some presence because we're in our own worlds doing our own thing and if we're just going to be an island and the other person's an island, that can work out. And if that's fine, that's fine. But a lot of people have a deep hunger for more intimacy and vulnerability and more depth and want to share their spiritual journey or their sexual journey or just like personal growth journey with their partners. And so you have to really be committed to creating that secure functioning. And that's kind of a technically sounding word, but I think it's a beautiful concept to take responsibility to care for your other partner. So that's something that Stan says, and he is in his own camp in the couples therapy world. He says that if you have a really great relationship, you want to take responsibility to meet your partner's needs. And that's not codependence, that's interdependence. And there's a lot of, you know, labeling anything of anyone wanting emotional from you is codependent. So that's kind of a trend I think that's happening right now is 
that's you know there's some superficial or, or narcissistic things there if someone's like my partner wants me to share how i feel they're codependent like no yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if that's what that is <laughs> um so needy <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> they're asking my how my day was again come God, on go away <laughs> yeah um but we we have our left brain and our right brain just another quick tangent our left brain's more logical linear verbal um thought oriented our right brain's more emotional embodied relational and our culture is prizes the left brain you could think of the engineer as a good little stereotype there yeah and when you're trying to have a conversation with that energy it's not very fun yeah. and so we need to get into our right brain we need to get into our bodies we need to get into our relational skill to have more enjoyment to celebrate our lives with someone that cares about us or our friends and so again taking responsibility for that uh, secure functioning of you know, I'm going to get mad at my partner, but I'm going to try to notice what they need and be open to talking about it. So I think being willing to uh, focus on the quality of connection because everyone comes in for couples therapy saying we want to communicate better. But in, in my language, the, nerve, the kind of neuroscience language is more about we want to feel more connected. It's a qualitative yeah. feeling. And you don't feel connected if you feel like the person across from you doesn't really want to track how you're feeling or acknowledge your emotions or try to see why you feel that way. But that ta- that's like asking things of us. And so in this culture, you can be on dating apps and not really have anyone ask anything of you. Mm-hmm. And that's fine if that works for you. But a lot of people are coming to me saying that doesn't work anymore. I want more. And so it takes, it's kind of uh, practicing the skills of slowing down in your body to be able to notice I'm starting to get annoyed and I didn't really know that was there. And if you can say that, it takes courage to, to put it out there with your partner, but to hang in that space where you can be relational and you can not be triggered. That's kind of the art of kind of working with your nervous system, but also taking responsibility to, to be a better communicator and create connection and, and go for it. So it sounds like you want to become mindful, maybe develop a mindfulness practice so you can be mindful in your relationship. So you can even start to be curious with your partner about what their needs are. And then also notice if you're getting triggered, kind of go through all these thought processes. Mm-hmm. But what are other ways to regulate your nervous system now? So like, you're like, mm-hmm. okay, you told me all this shit yeah. stuff, but I'm fucking losing my shit here. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't calm down or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my, one of my favorite things is, is shaking. Okay. So in, in trauma healing, Peter Levine founded Somatic Experiencing. So if anyone's dealing with trauma stuff, that's a great way to, to look into that work. And he observed animals in the wild. And so if, if you've ever worked with animals or been around dogs, you know, they, they shake it out. You know, so after a conflict in the wild, uh, their nervous systems are in tremendous stress and they shake it out of their bodies and then they're gone. You know, but us humans, we have our minds and we create stories and meanings that create a whole lot more suffering. So having a practice of shaking your body um, in Qigong, and that's from Taoism, that's like 5,000 plus years old. They do shaking every day for one to three minutes. Okay, and cool. If you're really not feeling well, 20 minutes a day. Wow. So it's, it feels really silly when you do it because it's like you're being a kid, you're just shaking, you know? Yeah. But it's really about kind of stimulating your lymphatic system and it de-stresses body. It, it dissolves tension in your body. So I would say start a shaking practice and you can look it up online and cool. find Qigong teachers or, you know, there's secular versions of that but um we can maybe do it after this and you can just get a taste of it but it's really fun and you feel great in just a few minutes so turn on some music you like and shake it out and see what happens see what that feels like uh besides that again regulating your breath or just noticing where you're tight in your body you know again with fitness you have a lot of body awareness sometimes so just 
checking your breath, taking deep breaths, like having a pause. Again, you know, if we're about to flip our lid, the best thing to do is slow down because then we can kind of get more resources to our brain. And so that takes discipline. And so it's more just, again, and having an intention to try to do that and fail some of the time. But then some of those moments you make that move, you take a few deep breaths before your next work call or something, and you show up the way you want it to. Um, besides breathing, um, let's see. I mean, physical movement is such a great thing. I mean, that's, I love swimming. You know, obviously you're here at Barbell Vitality. It's like being in your body and moving your body. We're humans. We're animals. Like we need to be in our body. And I think our society is very dissociated and we're just sitting at our screens all day and that's not how we're meant to live. And yeah. no problem with that. But if you have that lifestyle, can you prioritize going for a walk in nature? You know, we're, we're, we're also of nature and we're forgetting that too in our concrete yeah. jungle. And so it's again, really simple, kind of almost painfully obvious things, but how can we take time to go to Barton Springs, my favorite place, or, um, you know, have more awareness of our breath and our body and relax our muscles and, um, try to think of more off the top of my head, but that's, that's the start. There. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, also with movement, it doesn't always need to be, have some goal other than I, I like this thing cause it feels good and I can kind of get lost in it. And it's like, think about what you can get lost in. So if it's going on walks, or swimming or whatever, not, you're not trying to worry about calories burned <laughs> yeah. or I'm getting ready for an yes. event. It's literally, yeah. I just, I let my mind go and I'm like, by the end of it, I'm here. Yeah. 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 So I know he's talked about polyvagal theory a tiny bit, but I didn't really explain. It's a whole little yeah, thing let's go into, into it. But, um, so I explained the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, but there's a little bit more polyvagal theory has discovered that our parasympathetic has two branches, an older one, the dorsal vagal, which is like in our gut, okay. and it's a collapse response. So if you ever watch a video of a fox hunting an opossum, the opossum realizes that it's screwed. The fox is coming in. It's about to die, and it'll go from this uh, high stress, you know, sympathetic, like fight or flight, I'm about to fight or die response to a shutdown collapse. Whoa. So the dorsal vagal kicks in. It's like pulling the emergency brake on your car, and it plays dead. So the fox picks it up, and evolutionarily, it's meant to get some fight. Otherwise, it's it's not going to eat it. And yep. so it shakes it around. There's no fight, and it just drops it and walks away. Okay. So it's an evolutionary survival strategy. Sometimes we need to shut down to survive traumatic environments or difficult experiences. And so it's a very useful survival, but there's a lot of cost. It takes a lot of energy and toll on our nervous system to kind of pull the emergency brake like our car. Okay. Um, so understanding that we have this collapse response part of it again is just to notice like if you could track your nervous system do you relate more with kind of the collapsed energy or the kind of uh high-end energy the the kind of sympathetic overdrive where you know you need to be ready to fight or to flee that's a pretty intense energy if you're about to fight to the death or something you know or whatever that's that's a lot of adrenaline and so some people are in this kind of fight or flight and then move into collapse so they go through their day where they feel like there's a lot of intense energy in their body, but it's but there's but this kind of this collapsed energy too, so it's kind of stuck in there. So part of trauma work is to help you kind of unfreeze that over time to uh, kind of engage your survival protection response. So that the idea is to try to understand what your nervous system needs to kind of complete that energy or move that energy out of your body. And so again, with shaking, you're shaking that the stress out of your body. So that can be a part of it. Um, and, but if you're in this kind of dorsal vagal, you're this collapsed energy, how can you kind of get your energy moving? Like, is it just going for a walk? Is it, 
um, doing some push-ups? Is it doing shaking? Is it something, how do you acknowledge that you uh, have this kind of survival strategy? Yeah. And then that is that opens you up to really exploring more what makes sense to you. But it is about honoring your unique kind of blueprint and, and figuring out how to work with it instead of just shoving onto, you know, the fitness goal. Sometimes you just like, this is my goal and I don't care what my body says. I'm going for it. But yep. I think as you talked about in your first podcast, like that, that didn't really work. You had to re, you had to kind of yeah. shift your gears there. Yeah. You're just going to run yourself. It's like riding a horse until it dies. You know, the rider's like, I don't care. It's not going to work for very long. Yeah. You might get a little further faster, but in the end you won't get very far. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that you have the first part of your yeah so we got the dorsal vagal and then we have the ventral vagal okay and so this is the most evolutionarily adaptive so if you look at it as a ladder there's dorsal vagal then there's sympathetic activation and then there's ventral vagal so forgive me if this is all kind of just a bunch of words but the idea is that it's we've evolved in complexity and so the ventral vagal zone is when you can access the dorsal you can kind of relax and you can also be excited but in the kind of in an ideal bandwidth so this is where you want to be most of the time is okay. the idea. Um, but it's not so much about always being in ventral vagal. It's about being able to shift states. If you notice you're kind of almost running manic, can you actually notice that and slow down? Or if you're noticing feeling collapsed, can you call a friend or go outside and kind of get your energy up if that's what you're needing? Um, and so ventral vagal is where you basically have enough resources to where you can engage in social connection and play so a lot of people are trying to force themselves to be social when maybe their nervous system's in kind of a traumatized response and it's really not helpful it maybe makes it worse okay and that's and that's tough because there's not a lot of permission in our culture to relax again so if you have that more dorsal energy um you might be like really fighting against it instead of trying to listen to it which is is, is tough um, but so the idea of the ventral vagal branch of the nervous system is that you want to um, be in a state where you can have relationship. Like if you're trying to have an argument with your partner and you're up here or down here, it's going to be almost impossible. And so you know, maybe we're repeating myself here a little bit, but getting, great. noticing what your state is and seeing what, what you want to shift with it. And that's just a continuous practice that, that never ends. But the more you can notice when you're, when you're off and do something to, to shift it and be in the ideal zone for work and for play and with friends and with your peak peak performance, it all can uh, go that way. Also, if you and your partner know that you can be in these zones, you can then tell your partner, I'm not in the zone in which I can talk to you in a rational way. Yes. And it's not going to be good for either of us. Yes. But you both need to be on that same page or else they're going to think maybe it's a cop out. Like, yeah, yeah. You're always... <laughs> fight or flight what are you yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but that way you can honor and be like look i just i need some time or whatever because i'm amped up or you know yep. withdrawn or i don't know yeah yeah because exactly. you want to be able to come like you said in that place where you can meet with your higher brains yeah exactly yeah actually have a productive conversation yeah. <laughs> yeah and i mean i experienced that where you know maybe my partner's feeling more more dorsal vagal and i'm like let's go let's go let's go and it's just part of it is embracing them and like hey you take care of you i'm gonna go do my thing and then come back and then we're both kind of in this in the ideal zone for connecting yeah understanding that each individual has their own needs and also allowing the other person to meet their own needs too i think is super important yeah right yeah, and that I mean that's the the balance, right? Is is individuality and togetherness, and I think the ideal relationship we get to have both fully, 
But I think people feel like whether they're on one attachment side or the other, that they're going to lose themselves. If they don't grab onto someone, they're going to lose themselves. Or if they don't push other people away, they're going to lose themselves. And that's part of the kind of personal growth journey of really discovering what you need and, and kind of following that because people have very different communication styles or, or needs emotionally in the moment, especially under conflict. We have, to, you know, the attachment styles come out when we're under stress. So it's kind of like a threat response. So when shit hits the fan, that's when we pull away or we overly cling, especially. And so um, I think part of that, like for the island, is really honoring that you need time to yourself and advocating for it in a way that your partner can understand and not feel uh, betrayed by. Because if you can say, hey, I know you really want to be close and give me an hour to just do nothing and then I'll feel up for it. And that can... Being able to build that in instead of it just be always after conflict that we have to get to that is is the ideal world. And for the wave is taking responsibility to have your own regulation with your own mindfulness practice, but also be able to say like, hey, it feels really good when you text me something or when you come over here and spend some time really close. Like it just really soothes me and how to ask for that. And I think our culture, again, another layer is there's a lot of shame around asking for what we desire. Like who are you to just ask for what you want all the time? It, yeah. And fuck that. We we should ask for what we want. And obviously, we should be humble as well. But uh, it's really important to be able to advocate for our needs because I think we just sometimes swallow that and then resent it. And then that pops later on, you know, just as bad. I think there's something important to kind of note is you're making requests. You're not making demands. Yeah. So we're, your partner is open to making a different suggestion than you asked or also saying no and you being okay with no as well yep. and renegotiating you're not yep. saying i need you to be texting me <laughs> so like, i think it's super Uh-oh. important yeah. people understand oh, yeah. we're not making demands oh yeah that will end badly yep yeah. and that's and that's back to the relational component of negotiation stan says you it's less about compromise and more about negotiation you know, depending on the couple's therapy, people, there's different terms we love to throw around. Totally. But to me, I love the negotiation because it's really about like, what are my needs? What are your needs? Okay, let's get them both met somehow, which is different than I'm going to lose this time and you win and then I'm going to resent you for it and then I'm going to win next time and, and that goes on and on. I think that's an old paradigm and I think we all have people in our lives that run their relationships in that paradigm mm-hmm. of like, you know, resentment or you know, i don't know just a lot of dysfunction <laughs> <laughs> yeah well no one teaches us relationship skills you know about no i know it's and it's the most i think i don't know if it was uh, my sister was telling me warren buffett or is either warren buffett or like ray dalio he said the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life is like the partner you choose <laughs> right so if that doesn't yep. tell you how important relationships are yeah I, I don't know i don't know what else is and you like, like you said, your happiness is dependent on long-term relationships, yep. not wealth, not status, all that other stuff. Yeah. So work on these skills. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. And Stan talks about how we evolved to pair bond. So we went from kind of tribal living, you know, bands of 50 or whatever in a general stereotypical sense. And then we started pair bonding where we realize that okay if i have one person in this tribe that really knows me that really knows my needs and my uniqueness a lot more then i'm going to do better and so we actually that secure functioning there's a nice uh 
technical term allostatic load and that's yeah, the stress that. of your inner and outer that's stressors. total stress right exactly yep. and so secure functioning is not just some nebulous idea it's actually less allostatic load so if you have a partner who knows you who knows your needs who kind of gets you and is trying to take care of you just as you're doing the same you're gonna have less of an allostatic load so you're gonna have less uh, you're gonna have more resources more energy to go out there and live your best life and come back and Stan talks about the couple bubble, which is kind of cute, kind of okay. nerdy, which I love, which is the secure functioning. If you're really both trying to take care of each other's needs well and, and negotiate that, then you've got your little sanctuary because life is full of chaos and, and difficulty. But if you don't have a, a bubble to come back to, you're in chaos in the world and then you come back to chaos. That's really dysregulating for your system. So even if you just think about it, um, that I want to have, oh, hold on a second. Yeah. Get some water. <laughs> No, this stuff's super interesting. I love all this stuff. Yeah, so uh, if you can have a partner that is reducing your allostatic load, that's the whole point of partnership in a sense. You know, you choose a partner to make your life a little bit better. And if they can help reduce the, the inner and outer stressors of being a human right now, then that means you have more to show up to work, to show up to your fitness, to show up to your friends. And that's a pretty good deal. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think maybe you see that in like old couples that even if they're not getting along super great, right, they're still getting some needs met. And they're being just together and having that pair bond is reducing their stress. And then when they lose that partner, that stress goes up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something, again, Stan talks about is, you know, we get in relationship for different reasons, but mainly we're wanting security and safety. And, you know, I think we also want spiritual meaning or we want status sometimes. But if you really think about that, if, how do I create more safety and security for my partner? instead of kind of scoffing at my partner's needs if you're an island or, or not even knowing your partner has needs if you're a wave maybe. Um, and that, again, takes maturity and humility, but it's, a, it's something that can pay off in dividends, obviously. And so orienting towards, you know, we call it a secure process in couples therapy. I'm paying attention. Can they actually like listen to each other without interrupting? Can they allow their partner to be an individual? Can they assert their own needs as well as be flexible? Those are qualities that we want to aspire to, I think, because it makes our life better. But it takes practice and skill and time to how am I not being safe? You know, we think about safety is that gets thrown around a lot. So I mean, like emotional safety, if you share something vulnerable and your partner uses it against you or tells other people and betrays your trust, that's no, that's no safety and security there. But if you feel like your partner, you can tell them anything, they're a go-to person. If you if you're having a hard time, they're going to at least try to care about it. That that's that's everything, you know. That's something I think we're deeply hungry for, and our society doesn't really help us get that. But I think we're moving there, hopefully. In that I think direction, so. at least. I think so too. And uh, we're going to wrap up here. But anything else you want to leave us with? I mean, we could <laughs> dun, keep dun, going dun. on for <laughs> hours about all this stuff. But I think we'll just end there. And yeah, any any final thoughts, words, practices that you want to share? Yeah. Um, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great to chat with you. And yeah. Thanks for coming out. Yeah. I think just taking responsibility for the life that you want and how, how, where can you increase satisfaction through being more relationally aware? Like what, how can you deepen your friendships, your significant other with your family by um, practicing kind of how to be more present and show up for those relationships and just really drink the richness of having more fun and more juice in every interaction. I love that. So if people want to find you, work with you, follow you, 
What do they do? Yeah, I'm a counselor at Presence Wellness, so presencewellness.co um, and B, uh, BK's Road, not too far from here. Cool, yeah, we're neighbors. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm on Instagram, Peter Craig Counseling. Sweet, man. Well, thanks so much for coming out. I really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to Bodies by Brent. Brent has been a personal trainer for 16 years, and he's going to be here to help you get the body and health you've always wanted. Thanks for checking out the show, and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you have an idea or topic for the show, maybe you want to be on the show, and you're interested in working with Brent, visit our Instagram at bodiesbybrentatx. See you next time on Bodies by Brent. Brent.